Welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's newsletter, One Study, Many Results. Science is commonly understood as being a lot more certain than it is. In popular science books and articles, an extremely common approach is to pair a deep dive into one study with some kind of illustrative anecdote. And the implication is that that's enough. The study discovered something deep, and the anecdote made the discovery accessible to the reader. Or you can look at the coverage of science in the popular press, and sometimes even the academic press. Most coverage of science revolves around highlighting the results of some single new cool study. Again, the implication is that one study is enough to know something important. That tendency isn't universal, and I do think that some coverage in some outlets during COVID-19 has become a bit more cautious and nuanced. But still, it's common enough for this kind of coverage to persist that many people, quote, believe science as a sincere mantra, as if science made these pronouncements the same way that religions do or something. But that's not the way it works. Single studies, especially in the social sciences, which is what I focus on here, aren't certain. In the 2010s, it was really it, this became really clear because lots of studies, maybe even the majority that we tried to replicate, didn't replicate. And the failure of studies to replicate is often blamed on a bias towards publishing new and exciting results, publication bias, basically. And the idea there is that consciously or subconsciously, publication pressure to publish new and exciting results leads scientists to employ shaky methods that get them the results they want, but which don't deliver reliable results. But maybe it's actually worse than that. Suppose you could erase publication bias and just let scientists choose whatever method they thought was the best way to answer a question. Freed from the need to find some kind of cool result, scientists is going to be able to pick the best method to answer a question, and then they're going to just answer it. But the many analysts literature, which is what we're going to talk about today, shows that that's not the case. The truth is, the state of our, quote, methodological technology just isn't there yet. There remains a core of unresolvable uncertainty and randomness, even in the best of circumstances. Science just isn't certain. So what is this many analyst study or literature? In many analyst studies, multiple teams of researchers test the same previously specified hypothesis using usually the same data set, at least to start with. And in all the cases we're going to talk about today, publication is not contingent on results. So we don't have scientists cherry picking the results that are going to make the results look most interesting. And we don't have replicators cherry picking results to say overturn prior results. Instead, we just have researchers applying judgment to data in the hopes of answering a question. But even in that case, results can be all over the map. Let's start with a really recent paper in economics, Huntington Klein et al., 2021. And all of these papers have tons of authors, as we'll hear why soon. So that et al. is concealing a lot of names. In this paper, seven different teams of researchers tackled two research questions that had been previously published in top economics journals but where these papers that are being replicated weren't so well known that the replicators already knew about them. In each case, the papers are based on publicly accessible data. And part of the point of this exercise is to see how different decisions about building a data set from the same public sources lead to different outcomes. In the first case, researchers used variation across U.S. states in compulsory schooling laws to assess the impact of compulsory schooling on teenage pregnancy rates. Researchers are given a data set of schooling laws across states and times, but to assess the impact of these laws on teen pregnancy, they have to constru also construct a data set on individuals from publicly available IPUMS data. In building the data, researchers diverged in how they handled different judgment calls. For example, one team 
dropped data on women who lived in group homes, but the other teams kept them. Some teams counted teenage pregnancy as pregnancy occurring at the age of 14 and after, while one team counted pregnancy at the age of 13 as also teenage pregnancy. Another example is one team dropped data on women who never had any children. The other teams kept those women in. Lastly, in Ohio, schooling was compulsory until the age of 18 every year except 1944, when, according to the data there, the compulsory schooling age was just eight. Now, is that for real? Is that a genuine policy change? Or is that just a typo and they they dropped the one one year? One team just dropped this observation, but the others retained it. So between this and other judgment calls, no team ended up assembling exactly the same data set. Next, after they've got their data sets, the teams need to decide how exactly are they going to test this hypothesis. Again, each team differed a bit in the terms of what variables they chose to control for and what they didn't. Should they control for race, age, birth year, pregnancy year? Different teams made different choices. It's not immediately obvious which of those decisions are the right ones. Unfortunately, the decision you make matters a lot. And in the figure we've in the newsletter we've got these figures of everybody's results. And in this case, they're kind of all over. They range from Pregnant, uh, compulsory schooling generates a precisely estimated negative effect on teenage pregnancy to it has sort of an equally large positive effect and everything in the middle. Now, this paper also had a second study, and we're going to come back to that at the end of this. Huntington Klein et al. isn't the first paper to take this approach. An earlier paper in this vein is Silberzahn et al. 2018. In that paper, 29 research teams composed of 61 analysts sought to answer the question, are soccer players with dark skin tone more likely to receive red cards from referees? This time, teams were just given the same data, but they still had to make decisions about what to include and exclude from the analysis. The data consisted of information on all 1,586 soccer players who played in the first male divisions of England, Germany, France, and Spain in the 2012-2013 season, and for whom a photograph was available, which they are going to use to code skin tone. There was also data on player interactions with all the referees throughout their entire professional careers, including how many of those interactions ended in red card, and then a bunch of other control variables that you can choose to use or not use. As in Huntington Klein et al. 2021, the teams adopted a host of different statistical techniques, data cleaning methods, and exact specifications. For example, while everyone included number of games as one variable that they wanted to control for, only one other variable was included in more than half of the team's regression models. Unlike Huntington Klein et al. 2021, in this study, there was also a much larger range of different statistical estimation techniques that were used. Multi-level regression and logistic regression, hierarchical Bayes, OLS, Spearman correlation, linear probability model, and so on and so on. The resulting estimates are also pictured in the figure, and they kind of look okay. We've got most of the estimates lying between 1 and 1.5, but on the other hand, about a third of the teams can't rule out zero impact of skin tone on red cards, and the other two-thirds find a positive effect that's statistically significant at sort of standard levels. In other words, if we picked two of these teams' results at random, and we just called one of them the first result and the other the replication, they're only going to agree whether the result is statistically significant or not about 55% of the time. And that's without any publication bias. Let's look at another study. Bresnow et al. 2021 
get 73 teams comprising 162 researchers to answer the question, does immigration lower public support for social policies? Again, each team was given the same data. This time, that consisted of responses to surveys about support for government social policies. For example, a question might be, on the whole, do you think it should or should not be the government's responsibility to provide a job for everyone who wants one? Other data included measures of immigration at the country level and various country-level explanatory variables such as GDP per capita, the Gini coefficient, and so on. And in this case, the results are worse yet. They span the entire spectrum of possible uh, conclusions. Slightly more than half the results found no statistically significant link at all between immigration levels and support for policies. But a quarter found more immigration reduced support, and more than a sixth found more immigration increases support. In this case, if you pick two results at random, they're only going to agree on the direction and statistical significance of the results under half the time. Now, we could do more studies, but the general consensus, if you look at them, is the same. When many teams answer the same question, beginning with the same data set, it's quite common to find a widespread of conclusions, even without any of this worry about publication bias. Now, at this point, it's tempting to hope that the different results stem from differing levels of expertise or differing quality of analysis. You know, okay, we might say different scientists, they're going to reach different conclusions, but maybe that's because some scientists are just bad at research. The good scientists doing the right techniques, they're going to agree. But as best as these papers can tell, that's, also, that's not really a big factor. So, for example, the study on soccer players tried to answer this in a few ways. First, the teams were split into two groups based on various measures of expertise. For example, uh, have the people on the team taught many classes on statistics? Have they published on methodology, etc.? The half, so the you know the half of the teams that were labeled as having greater expertise, expertise, were indeed more likely to find a positive and statistically significant effect. That is, seventy-eight percent of the teams instead of sixty-eight in the less expert group. But the variability of their estimates was actually the same across the two groups. It was just shifted in one direction. The second approach this paper took was the teams actually graded each other on the quality of their analysis plans without seeing the results. But in this case, the quality of the analysis plan was actually unrelated to the outcome that was observed. And that was the case even if you only look at the grades given by experts in the statistical technique being used. The other study, the really big one, also split its research teams into groups based on methodological expertise or topical expertise. So, you know, expertise in the method or perhaps in immigration and its effect on social policy expertise. In neither case did it have much of an impact on the kinds of results discovered. So don't assume the results of a given study are definitive to the question. It's quite likely that a different set of researchers tackling the exact same question and starting with the exact same data would have obtained a different result, even if they had the same level of expertise as far as an outsider can judge. But, while most people probably overrate the degree of certainty in science, it seems to me there's also this sizable online contingent that sort of embraced the opposite conclusion. They love to emphasize the shortcomings. They know all about the replication crisis, they know all about the unreliability of research, and they've concluded that the whole scientific operation is a scam. You know, I think this goes too far in the other direction. For example, a science nihilist might conclude that if expertise doesn't drive the results above, then it must be that scientists simply find whatever they want to find, and that their results are designed to fabricate evidence for whatever they happen to believe already. But that doesn't seem to be the case, at least in these multi-analyst studies. 
In both the study of soccer players and the one on immigration, participating researchers reported their beliefs before doing their analysis. And in both cases, there wasn't really a statistically significant correlation between prior beliefs and reported results. So if it's not expertise, and if it's not preconceived beliefs that drive results, what is it? I think it really is simply that research is hard and different defensible decisions can lead to different outcomes. Huntington Klein et al. 2021 performed this interesting exercise where they apply the same analysis to different teams' data, or alternatively apply different analysis plans to the same data set. Those, that exercise suggests roughly half of the divergence stems from different decisions made in the database construction stage and half from different decisions made about analysis. So there's no silver bullet. There's just a lot of little decisions that add up. So more importantly, while it's true that any scientific study should not be viewed as the last word on anything, studies still do give us signals about what might be true, and those signals add up. So if we look at the above studies... I'm not certain of anything. There's too much variability. But I do come away thinking it's slightly more likely that compulsory schooling reduces teenage pregnancy. It's pretty likely that dark-skinned soccer players get more red cards. And also that there's probably no simple, meaningful relationship between immigration and views on government social policy. And that comes from assuming that most of the decisions these people are making are defensible to generate these different outcomes. And so I'm just going to go with the results that sort of show up more often than not. And sometimes the results are actually pretty compelling. So earlier I mentioned that Huntington Klein et al. 2021 actually investigated two hypotheses. In the second hypothesis, Huntington Klein et al. asked researchers to look at the effect of employer-provided health care on entrepreneurship. The key identifying assumption in this study is that in the U.S., people become eligible for publicly provided health care, that is Medicare, at age 65. But people's personalities and their opportunities they tend to change more slowly and idiosyncratically. It's not like everybody suddenly is more entrepreneurial on their 65th birthday. So the study looks at how rates of entrepreneurship compare between groups just older than 65 and those just under. Again, researchers have to build a database to test this idea from publicly available data. And again, every team made different decisions such that none of them constructed the exact same data set. Again, researchers have to decide exactly how to test the hypotheses. And again, they all chose slightly, you know, they all chose slight variations in how to test it. But this time, those results didn't matter so much. The estimated effects line up reasonably well. Pretty much everybody found a positive effect, but they varied on whether this was, uh, you know, statistically significant or just barely not statistically significant. I think that's pretty compelling evidence that there's probably something really going on here, at least for the time and place under study. And it isn't necessary to have teams of researchers do this work. Multiverse analysis asks researchers to explicitly consider how their results change under all plausible changes to the data analysis. Essentially, it asks individual teams to try and behave more like a set of teams. In economics, and I should say, I'm sure this happens in lots of other fields, but I, I know economics best. Something like this is supposedly done in the robustness checks section of a paper. In the robustness checks of a study, researchers show how the results are or are not robust to alternative data and analysis decisions. Now, the trouble has long been that robustness checks are selective rather than systematic. And we all fear that researchers only highlight the robustness checks that make their core conclusion look good and they kind of bury the other ones. But I wonder if this is changing. 
The robustness check section of economics papers has been steadily ballooning over time, contributing to the sort of novella-like length of many modern economics papers. You know, the average length of a paper in economics rose from 15 pages to 45 pages between 1970 and 2012. Some papers are now beginning to include figures that look a lot like the ones generated by these multiple analysis teams. They show how the core results change when assumptions change. Notably, some of these figures, like the one in the newsletter, include lots of sets of assumptions that show results that aren't statistically significant from zero. So they're not, we can see that they're not hiding everything, at least. Now, economists complain about how difficult all of these robustness check requirements are how they make the publication process more painful, and papers with these long robustness checks are unpleasant to read. But the multiple analysis network suggests it's probably still a good idea, at least until our methodological technology catches up and we don't have this huge spread of results when you make different defensible decisions. Now, more broadly, I take three lessons away from this literature. One, failures to replicate are actually to be expected, given the state of our methodological technology, even in the best circumstances, even if there's no publication bias. Doesn't mean there isn't publication bias, but I'm saying we can't eliminate this given the state of our methods under use. Two, you gotta form your ideas based on suites of papers or even entire literatures, not primarily on individual studies. Lots of people know this, but lots of people don't do this still. Third, there's plenty of randomness in the research process for publication bias to exploit. And I hope to talk about that in the future. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end-of-the-episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.